Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the TTE podcast. And um, lately I've been watching a lot of the news and it seems like with, you know, we're on the precipice of World War Three, even though I don't mean to scare people when I say that. But, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine the other day. So who knows where that's going to end? But one of the things I've been seeing in the news a lot is this idea that democracy is on its deathbed, that um, democracy is going to die. We're going to be a different country. We're moving towards being an autocratic state, all this other stuff. And sometimes I look at it and I think eh, that might be true. And other times I look at it like, eh, I'm thinking this might be overblown. So what I thought would be good is to get two people on who are not afraid to say what they think and could give me some perspective around just what they think about it and whether or not any of this is really true or is this media hype or or what have you so with that um ashley and john are here um good evening guys how are we today hello very glad to be with you again doing wonderful thanks for having us oh fantastic so um i'll just open it up so ashley i'll start with you um big picture do you really think democracy's dying i don't think it's dying i think it is in trouble I think if we've learned anything from the last few years, we have seen how easy it is. And I, I'm going to focus a lot today on voter suppression, because I think that if we make it too difficult for people to vote, I think that in and of itself is the death of democracy. And we have seen how easy it is for states to make widespread changes to how uh, easily people can vote, especially people who have more of a tendency to be more democratic, uh, just traditionally based on uh, race, socioeconomic status, um, where you live, whatever, it's, it's making that much easier to happen. And I think what we're seeing is other states going, huh, that was really easy for them to do. And now they're able to get to control the narrative in their state. I wonder how easy that would be for us to do. And I worry that that could be or is one of the big tipping points towards the death of. I'm glad you brought up voting rights, because that's something that I definitely want to get into and unpack a little bit. But before we do that, um, John, big picture, is democracy dead or is it dying or is it on its deathbed? Yeah, probably. Can it be resuscitated? Um, I I think I'm I'm in a lot of the same space as Ash. Um, I think that we are at a crossroads, and there is an opportunity to say that our democracy needs a refreshment. Um, I think you know I'm not sure if I can cite where I learned it from, but the founding fathers really had intended for us to revisit uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and to go back and to evolve it for the times. And I think that certain parties have learned how to game our system through gerrymandering, uh, through voter suppression, um, in order to tip the scale. And in that, uh, in that moment, they have determined that winning is more important than democracy. And so seeing this group of folks learn how to game things, learn how to effectively put, you know, four or five percentage points into their back pocket that you have to win by 54, 46 before you can really substantially think that you are going to be victorious in an election. Um, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to bolster democracy and we need to do it sooner than later. Um, because we just got out of four years of of people running rampant through our government. That's a good point. And I think one of the things that I'm overly concerned about is just the fatigue. So I think, or at least it seems to me, that so many people were relieved that Trump was no longer the president. It doesn't make a difference to me if you liked him, if you hated him, if you agreed with him or not. That's irrelevant to me. But there are so many people that were just flat out relieved that he's no longer the president that it seems people have sort of taken their eye off the ball. So, Ashley, to your point, when I think about voter suppression and this idea that we need to make sure that um, there is no fraud in the election, 
I struggle with this a little bit because, A, there really was no fraud um, because Trump went to court over 60 times, but they couldn't produce any evidence of the fraud. Any fraud that did come up, at least the fraud that I'm aware of, were all Republicans who voted twice for Trump. So if I'm going to follow this logic that something bad might happen, so we need to make sure it that bad thing never happens. If I follow that logic, then we need more gun law because something might go wrong. So therefore, we need another law. But when I go down that path, I can see gun advocates and gun rights people saying, we don't need any more laws. The laws aren't effective. Well, if that's the case, and we already have laws that deal with voter fraud, what do we need another voter law for? So the only conclusion I could come to is that overwhelmingly, people voted for Biden because they were just exhausted of Trump. It wasn't a vote for Biden. It was a vote yeah. against Trump. But their political party has turned a corner and it's not going back to the way it used to be. So this idea that you could get a George Bush Republican or a John Kasich Republican or a Ronald Reagan Republican, this notion doesn't exist anymore. They are wholesale lock and barrel for Trump. They're in the bag. They don't even pretend to be conservative anymore. And it tells me that you can't win unless you go this route, which dovetails nicely with the idea that you can't run for office unless you swear allegiance to this man. And to me, it's that confluence of events or that confluence of factors is what is in the ether when it comes to whether or not democracy is dying. Does that make sense? It does. And and I think I'm going to challenge you here for a second, because while I absolutely agree that there is a huge, very vocal portion of the Republican Party that feels exactly the way in which you described, I think there's a, another pretty big sector that you would almost call kind of like the, quote, old guard, like the, the Liz Cheney's, right? that are saying, hey, this is not what it means to be a conservative, and I am going to go against this with all of my might. And my hope is that we can get back to the days where we can say, hey, I don't like George Bush because of some of his policy decisions, and not, I didn't like Donald Trump because he talked about how it's okay to grab a woman by the pussy. These are two very different conversations about conservative values. One is not even a little bit of a conservative value, but has somehow morphed into it for a portion of our country. I know many Republicans who do not like Trump and who do not want to vote for somebody who flies the Trump flag. So I think what we've got, and, and I'm not going to go too far down this road, but what's interesting is I think we have it in both parties, Dennis. We have this fracturing, if you will, in each party where it's like, where is it going to go? I think we're at a tipping point in both parties where we're seeing kind of, you know, what, what does it mean to be an old Democrat versus a new Democrat? What does it mean to be an old Republican versus a new Republican? And I think we're really at a tipping point for both of them. And I think whatever way that falls is going to be a massive decider as to what our country looks like in the future. I would agree with that. And I think what's scary for me is the idea that we're becoming so polarized that there's no there's no middle no, anymore. There's no right. sort of and you guys know me. I, we've you know, we've worked together. We've been friends for so long. Of the three of us, I am the centrist. I am very much the moderate <laughs> of the three of us. And I just keep thinking over and over that the solution is not in any extreme, I, either way it goes. I agree. And what I find to be really, really interesting is when we sit behind our keyboards and we we rant and we rave and, and we listen to the media that is literally profiting off of getting us to hate one another. It's really, really easy to see how polarized we are. When we take down those screens and have conversations, and I remember the first time John and I were on the podcast with you, that was one of the big things we talked about was in COVID. It was very difficult to have that neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, face to face conversation that can truly change minds. When you have that conversation, I think we're able to see that we're not as polarized as we think we are. And, and I, I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here from what I talked about at the beginning, but I think that's another threat to our democracy is the media, the media that is literally profiting 
off of getting us to be more and more divisive against one another. And that that scares me a lot. And what I find to be really fascinating, I read an article today that was talking about how uh, there are different out- news outlets in Russia that are using media propaganda to make it seem like Ukraine is the aggressor and everything going on. And it's so easy as Americans to go, oh, man, I cannot believe the the Russians were, would fall for that propaganda. It's like, hello, have you seen Fox News or CNN? Like both sides of the aisle. They are exactly profiting off of getting us to hate each other. That's propaganda. And that's scary. And that's a. am glad you used the word the adjective propaganda, because. I think part of this ripping of democracy at the frab- the fabric of democracy is this idea of propaganda in the sense of we're never going to tell you what you should know. We are going to give you a sanitized version of what we think you know that better serves our purpose and less yours. And I think that's – I heard a statistic the other day which I f- – which which I which kind of scared me, and then I thought, you know what? This best sums up where we're at as a country right now. So it was a professor that was talking about we don't need to be banning books in this era of um, our country. The last thing you want to do is ban books, and she said the reason why you don't want to do that is because she said fifty four percent of people between the ages of sixteen and seventy four read at a sixth grade level or below, and in that context, you want to ban books. So when I think about the word propaganda and everybody's reading at a half of America's reading at a sixth grade level or below, that's one out of every two and almost three out of every five people you see are reading at a sixth grade level. No wonder we are where we are. To me, that's where democracy's dying because we don't have an educated populace. We have people that are accepting what they're being told from Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow and people aren't investigating it for themselves and informing themselves and educating themselves so they can determine what the truth really is. To me, that's where the death of democracy lies. I I agree with you completely. I don't agree with the comparison between Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow. I think one of those is based in fact and the other one is absolutely um, – Uh, It is propaganda. Um, We absolutely do need book burnings, uh, Dennis, because if we don't burn these books, then more than 54% of our country will read at more than a sixth grade level. And if that should happen, then we'll have critical thinking. And I think a lot of the polarity that we talk about and um, a lot of the one side agree with you on so many different points there. I take a little offense to comparison, comparing Tucker Carlson to Rachel Maddow. Uh, one of those is definitely based in fact, and the other one uh, definitely fantasy. I would argue, Dennis, that we definitely do need book burnings uh, because if you are going to want to run a propaganda campaign, if you want to profit on the back of people being polarized, then you need people to lack critical thinking. You need an uneducated base. So, you know, the the desire to dumb down America's working class has been going on for, gosh, 40 years now uh, that we've been working on that. I would argue 200 and yeah, perhaps even even farther back than that. Um, but it is about creating this polarization because if you have critical thinking, you know, I think back to my understanding of policing. Um, and I very much used to be in the there are a few bad apples, but the majority are pretty good. Um, and then with the events of, you know, the murder of George Floyd with um taking time to grow some awareness, I've realized that I wasn't right in that. And I had to relearn the way that I was approaching that situation. And that only comes with critical thinking. And so I would argue that so much of this drag on democracy is the dumbing down of the populace so that they will just accept what's being told to them and and fight with other people and keep dragging each other down. So, John, I, I don't think I totally followed that. So why do you think that it's critical that there's book burning? That that was the disconnect because, that I had. 
Yeah, because we have to keep the populace dumb. Um, so okay, it, so you're not arguing for <laughs> book burning, just to be clear. So I am sarcastically arguing okay. for book burning. <laughs> just, Thank you just for so clarifying. the people are clear. Just so the people just are clear. So the people are clear. <laughs> I was I like, wait a second, not... everything I knew about John McNamara just got flipped on its head. <laughs> right? Yeah, that was and gonna require a massive sidebar. Con- that was, it was gonna require a massive sidebar conversation. What's interesting like, though, you know, we- John, about people pushing for book banning is I think that that especially in our our younger population, right? Teenagers, early 20s, there's this mentality at that age of like, you're going to tell me not to push the red button? Screw you, I'm pushing the red button. And so I find it fascinating that these books that are being banned are now skyrocketing on the bestseller list. And people are buying them. People are checking them out of libraries like they have never before. So I really find that fascinating to see that that younger demographic is giving a middle finger to the establishment and saying, you don't want me to read it. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I think the other thing, too, um, to piggyback off that thought is that I've been given a lot of thought to like when we were kids or when, you know, your parents were were children sort of who are your heroes? And a lot of people looked up to athletes and, and whatnot, but these kids today, their heroes don't live in a Norman Rockwell painting. Their heroes are Drake and LeBron and NBA Youngboy and, you know, the rap, they're rappers and they're athletes and, and it's Obama. And it's like, like, it's a whole tapestry of people because, you know, like the number one music in the world is hip hop. And when you identify with even Eminem or Machine Gun Kelly, all of a sudden, any of this bullshit that you hear about, you know, we need to be stronger with police and this and the third and George Floyd's overblown and blah, blah, blah. You can't take that back and look at your friends that you care about on a very human level because they accepted you for who you were and then co-sign on that bullshit. And I think that's where it's changing. Like when we go to vote for the president in two years, the 60% of the population that's going to be voting are Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and millennials. And this idea, these baby boomer values that we've been living with since the, you know, 70s and 80s and moving forward, those sensibilities are going to have to go by the wayside. Like I've yet to find somebody to explain to me why the color of my skin is a threat to them. That's your unconscious bias that you have to deal with. But somehow like like th- and I'm on a bit of a tangent here, so forgive me. So this law in Florida where we don't want to teach kids about, you know, this woke law or whatever, because no child should be made to feel uncomfortable because of their race or their religion or blah, blah, blah. Un- fundamentally, I agree with this. However, by going about it this way, what you're effectively saying is. It's okay for you not to feel bad to learn about it, but it's certainly okay for me to have to live with it still. So what happens when a smart black family comes in and says, the way you're teaching the Civil War makes my child feel uncomfortable because you're not telling the truth and this backfires? What happens then? You should have been born white. (laughs) Right. You see what I'm saying? It's like, like, come on, man. It sounds tongue-in-cheek, but that's where we are. That's what we're saying. And it reminds me a lot of, and I just saw this the other day because someone sent me this documentary uh, about a a man in Mississippi. I'm going to murder his name, but I think is, oh, that's a wrong verb Consider what happened to him. Sorry. Um, I think his name was George Hill, but I'm probably getting the name wrong. George Lee, excuse me. His name was George Lee. He was a preacher in Mississippi and he's in the uh, early to mid fifties and he is killed by some people that are associated with with what was called at the time the White Citizens Council of Mississippi. And he was murdered for simply registering people to vote. This is in the 1950s. And one of the people that was pressing local authorities and the government to continue to investigate what happened to this man was Medgar Evers. And then they shot and killed him too. Over voting. So, yeah. to me, 
Ashley, you hit it. It is about voting rights, but it is, to John's point, also this idea we've evolved as a country to a place where how I feel is more important than the objective truth. Absolutely. And, my and that question, is the evil genius of Trump is that he appealed to how you feel the facts yep. be damned. Yep. I, yep. I 100% agree with you. And and my question to people who are in favor of uh, stricter voting laws, which, by the way, I think that if you had a conversation face to face with most Americans, they would not be in favor of stricter voting laws. These aren't laws that are being voted on. These are the people in power who want to remain in power. So I'm just giving that caveat. But I think that when we get down to kind of the the brass tacks of that, um, that is not something that people want. And my question to people who do want it is, what are you trying to prevent? Like, why is it that you want a certain group of people not to vote. Because the truth of the matter is, and there are plenty of statistics that show this, like lots of them, that when voting numbers are up, Democrats win. And that's the truth. And so my question is, why are you trying to stop the will of the people? And I don't think people are comfortable answering that. Because I don't well, think I that the other side has anything to offer every, every everyday regular people living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, because the Republicans have excellent branding. That's why. So if you go up to a person who's voting for restricting voting laws, um, restricting voting access, and you say, "I don't think you like black people to vote, and you just want Republicans to win," they say. No, no, no. That's not what it's about. It's about the illegal immigrants. And if you are not a citizen of this country, then you don't have the right to vote, which is accurate. They packaged it in a way that they can sleep at night. You know, I I don't think as much as I'm told um, by many major media outlets that the majority of Republicans are racist. I agree. But the Republican Party does an amazing job talking about how voting rights is protecting us from illegal votes. And on the Democratic side, all you hear about um, the social safety net bill is how it's $3.2 trillion Mm -hmm. and we can't afford that. We don't talk about its universal pre-K. We don't talk about expanding Medicare. Um, We don't talk about providing um, Medicare to all mothers for the first two years of their child's life. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that was in there. That is an incredible component of that law. And yet all I I hear is how much the ending cost of it is going to be. But John, that's Democrats' fault because they're shitty at politics. You I, like I, I they agree. don't have the don't. votes to slam through 3.2 trillion. So this idea of they were going to shoot for the stars and land on a star, they fucked themselves that way. Like, but I will say this: people who subscribe to what you described around this Republican approach of no, 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 it's not this. It's 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 we need to make sure that you know illegals don't vote, or it needs to be fair that there's no cheating. We don't care who votes; every vote should count. I've learned in my 42 years as a black man walking this earth that if there's one thing people know how to do, they know exactly what not to say to get their ass whooped. (laughs) That's what I know to be true, because the one thing you can't appear to be is racist. And I was telling people this the other day, the worst day of the year to me, the, the day I look forward to the absolute least is Martin Luther King Day. It's the worst day of the year to me to see people get on TV and quote King over and over and over about the content of your character and not the color of your skin. When he would have been for universal basic income, he would have been for Medicaid Mm -hmm. for all. They would have called him a terrorist and a socialist and and a Marxist and all of this. And you can't say that's not true because they called him all of that when he was alive. Yep. Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, come on. The hypocrisy is so thick. It is the worst day of the year to me. They I have cannot stand it. Martin Luther King. They, they, yeah. No, that's the thing. Ash. They've whitewashed everything. We can't talk about what really happened. I mean, honestly, this country would have been way better off 
if the North would have forced the South to see recon, um, reconstruction through. But once troops pulled out and no one got their 40 acres and a mule and white Southern grievance kicked in, we had a hundred year period from the end of the war to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what's not taught is what happened to someone who looks like me during that 100 year period. We'll talk about anything else, but we won't talk about that and how what happened during that period still impacts us today. We'd be further along as a country if we would have done the right thing, but we didn't. And I don't blame anybody who's living today. You didn't have any say in those choices or those decisions. But a lot of people, and John, I think this is the larger point you're making, a lot of people are benefiting still from the infrastructure and the institutions that were put in place. Someone on Twitter the other day, about a month ago, quoted, said something that stuck with me. And what they said was, what we have in this country are racist systems, racist institutions put in place by racist people for a racist purpose that are now being protected by non-racist people for non-racist reasons. <laughs> yep. And, and I thought, you know what, I don't know that I could have summed that up any know. better, but I don't know how we unpack that and get past it. I don't know that that last sentence, the last part of it there, that they're trying to keep them for non-racist reasons. Like, I, I think that we have an understanding that these policies are disparate in nature and have a negative effect on marginalized individuals. And so you can try to sweep over the result, the impact of something, but we have the awareness at this point to say that this definitely affects a specific group of people negatively. And so you can pretend to come up with reasons like protecting the vote from illegal immigrants. But at the end of the day, there's a responsibility to look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, wait, you know what? I, it, I've i been telling myself a lie or I've been taught a lie. And here is the impact that it is having on people. And I need to evolve my understanding yes. of this situation. Yes. But I is totally that Pollyannish? Is no. that Pollyannish? Like, no, I get I it. I, I don't disagree with that, but that sentiment. But realistically, people aren't looking themselves in the mirror and having that conversation privately with themselves. No, they're I not. Do. But and you're right, John, there are people that do, but widespread, they're not. And it makes me think about what you were just saying a minute ago, Dennis, about how you were saying that you don't blame anybody today. I do. I, I do. do. I do. Because even though there's nobody alive who had anything to do with the Civil War and, and Reconstruction and anything that happened during that time. I blame the people today that shove their fingers deep in their ears and say, la, la, la. That mm -hmm. ignorance, that willful ignorance, I blame because it is causing the systemic racism in this country, which is it, the whole point of this conversation is, you know, the death of democracy. I think voter suppression, which I kind of kicked everything off with, is a racist ideology. And that mm -hmm. has a lot to do with things that happened years ago. And the people that are willfully ignorant and saying, no, 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 it has to do with illegal immigrants. Bullshit. If you look at the states that have put in place of, of voter suppression where they are making historically black communities they are are taking the number of voting stations significantly down and making people wait for hours and hours and hours to vote and not making election day a national holiday things like that you are directly directly targeting the minorities in this country for your own benefit i blame you yeah. Yeah. No, it's and, and there was one spot that you missed in there. It is not reducing all the polling locations. It is reducing the polling stations in predominantly yes. black areas. That is where it's going on. It is so blatant um, and it is so offensive. And so, yeah, I will continue to hold blame against individuals who um, won't look at that and understand that and not even understand, to to live in that hypocritical moment and say, oh, I'm doing this for the benefit of the country. No, I get what you're saying. I, I think for me, I 
the people, Ashley, that you describe that willfully know what they're doing and get cute with their words. Yeah, I blame those folks in terms of not making it better. But these folks that are just ignorant. Okay. okay. I think they're even the people that are ignorant. I think there is still a willful part of it. Right. You said earlier on in the podcast that this idea, and I totally agree with it, this idea where the way I feel is more important than the facts of the situation. It, it, if, you are, if you are able to put aside yourself and your emotions for a very brief period and consider facts, then you would understand what is going on. But I blame people who are choosing to be ignorant. They don't know the truth because they are not allowing themselves to know the truth. And I find fault in that. Here's, here's my question, though, to you, Ash, is like, we know that we've asphyxiated our education system. And so, like, I am often curious how close I could have stood to the fire of racism and ignorance and hypocrisy and not fallen into that trap myself. I'm a human being just like them. Yep. You know, I, I struggle with this idea that we were all kids. Uh, it was, uh, the, there was one of the police shootings in Atlanta where, um, the gentleman was running away from the police unarmed, um, and was shot in the back several times. Both of those people were kids at one point, and both of them thought that they were doing the right thing, and one of them took another person's life. Yeah. And I just, I don't know how you get to that point in your life where you have so much anger and ignorance and you're willing to say, I, things are, and, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's that feeling of rats on a sinking ship to say, this world mistreats the people that we would define as ignorant pretty harshly. I mean, it, the the way that poverty is treated in this country is is pretty offensive. Um, and there is a mentality in that space that you have to fight for yourself and to be to 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 hell with anybody else who's not your family. Sure. And so I I don't know. I struggle sometimes in these moments of the anger that I have for the ignorant versus understanding that it's a person and I could have potentially walked that same path in life. And John, I will tell you that I this is where I'm evolving because I think sometimes from a media perspective, it's easy to dismiss this dismiss this stuff, put things in a box and say, oh well this is racist or this is not racist or this is yeah. prejudice and this is not prejudice. And all of those things are a factor, and I don't want to downplay any of those, but I think one of the factors that's not considered in all of this, which really would help to illuminate where we're at, is this is a function of class, that yeah. this country yes. is designed to suppress marginalized people and tuck them in a corner. And the deal we've sort of made with ourselves, and this is sort of dark side of the moon type stuff when it comes to capitalism, is – we don't want to see anybody mistreated. We don't believe in servitude and slavery. We've evolved as a country. We don't agree with that. But we are comfortable with this notion of shareholder wealth and maximizing it. So if it means you have a, as a single mother's got to work three jobs and and she's got to work at Taco Bell and McDonald's and Walmart and, you know, she's only making, you know, $12 an hour between, you know, one and six and seven dollars at the other. We, we've made a deal with ourselves as citizens of this country that that's okay. And so therefore anybody who's sort of in that class, that sort of crabs in a barrel mentality starts to creep in. Because again, I cite the statistic that I used earlier. If people are reading at a sixth grade level, it's going to be hard to kind of rise above and overcome that. And then when people do, you know, and I think this is a fair criticism of Democrats is that Democrats have a tendency to be a little elitist and want to talk down to people. It's like, no, 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 no. You still need to treat people with a measure of dignity and respect. But at yeah. the same time, you have to respect the fact from where they're coming from, because that's still a human being that's living a human existence. But part of their human existence is by design because we've designed it in such a way to suppress people. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that capitalism is evil. I'm not saying that socialism or communism is the way to go. I'm just saying for all of capitalism's greatness, 
there are some things it could be better at. And I think one of those things is, you know, allowing people to be able to live a dignified life on a wage that they can actually afford their bills and live somewhat of a decent life. But at the end of the day, I think that's a huge factor in the death of democracy, because if all you see is people taking or if you're told all these people do is take from you, whether it's illegal immigrants coming to take jobs that you don't even want. You're not picking tomatoes. You're not in here working at Motel 6 under the table as a maid. You don't even want these jobs, but yet these people are taking your jobs because these people that are powerful at the top from a class perspective are playing on your ignorance. I never Mm -hmm. understood for the life of me if you were broke why you would ever vote Republican. They don't have anything to offer you regardless of your race, religion, or background. These people don't have anything to offer you. They're going to tell you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but you've never had any boots. Hmm. Well, the Democrats don't have all the answers either, to be clear. Yeah, hell no, not even close. Oh, one, of, one of my favorite things that you've ever said on this show uh, was Republicans don't care and Democrats don't deliver. Um, and I like that was such an eye-opening statement for me. Like the Republicans don't care about the people. And yet when people do come together and vote up the Democrats, what have we seen over the last 12 months? I mean, we got an infrastructure bill barely. You know, you said it was uh, the Democrats mistake to shoot for the stars on a $3.2 trillion social safety net bill. I would argue that if you've got somebody has their house on fire and they ask for a fire hose to put it out and you offer them a cup of water, you're not doing them any good either. But I, I just, I get frustrated because I don't know the way out and I do see the troubles that democracy has. And I don't see either side functionally moving us towards something more robust. And John, I, I, I think that's where I'm at. I think you summed it up pretty well in terms of where I'm at. To me, Democrats would have been better off with getting everything they can get based on the votes they had. So that way they can say, we gave, we delivered everything that we could. And if you continue to vote for us, we'll give you more. Now yeah. they've cut off their nose to spite their face. So no one gets it. It's like when one of your kids breaks the lamp and you don't know who broke it. So everyone gets punished. It's like, I had nothing to do with this. What do you mean I don't get ice cream now? This is bullshit. It's like, you guys got to be smarter than this. But this idea that yes. we're going to hold everything up because Joe Manchin, this and Christian cinema, that get the fuck out of here oh, with that bullshit. You've delivered nothing. I can wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which one feels faster. You guys have offered me nothing. So what am I supposed to do with nothing? Yep. And that's my yeah. biggest and, fear. And what does is that, nothing give me hope for on your next term? And so why, why should I vote for you? Up? Why well, should that's I the vote problem for with you? the Democratic Party is this as long as I can remember, this has been exactly how Democrats have worked. We're going to promise you the moon and everything's going to be great. And then we get into office and we don't do anything. And then the people like John and I, who are more on the, the left leaning end of the Democratic spectrum, we're like, <sighs> I mean, we don't actually think they're going to get anything done, but, you know, it's better than the alternative. And that's not freaking motivating. That's exactly what happened in 2016 is the message we got is I'm not Trump. That's not motivating. When the Democrats can't deliver, when Joe Biden and his administration can't deliver, that's not motivating. I am certain that a Republican is going to get elected in our next presidential But Ashley, that's the message we got in 2020. But the difference was after being in bed with Trump for four years, everybody just said, I'm not voting for Joe Biden. I'm voting against. Yep. I'm voting against Trump. So now four years later, when Biden decides to run again, it is not healthy for our country to pick between an 82-year-old Joe Biden and a 78-year-old Donald Trump. We are a better country. There are so many smart, talented people who are qualified to run for president. But this is the best we can do. A guy that's a heart attack away and a guy that eats buckets of fried chicken in Florida? This is the best we can do? I mean, let's be clear. I'd be cool with eating a bucket of fried chicken in Florida right now. But yes, and I would be okay (laughs) with you doing that too, but not if it meant you were going to run for president right after. This is very, very true. This is very true. But 
I just think at the end of the day, when I he- when I hear this rhetoric about democracies dying, it feels a lot like Chicken Little to me. But I, I at the same time, I think it's one of those things where it's a slow turn towards death, and that's what concerns me because I think the risk is there. I think the risk is real. And I just wonder, I always believe, I tell my daughter this all the time, it's going to be young people that end up saving us. Like, I'm so impressed with these people, um, with these kids that came out of Florida. I can't remember the name of their high school that got shot shot up. But um, those kids are so impressive to me that those kids got politically active and said, no, you are not going to be coming here and shooting up our school or any other school. And if you defend gun rights over this bullshit, you're full of shit. Fuck you. I am so proud of those kids and it's kids like that that are going to get active. They say the status quo won't work and there's more of us than there are of you. Those kids give me hope, but those kids are apolitical. This is not about being Democrat or about being Republican. This is about, hey, I should be able to go to school and be safe and let's have some common sense about it. That gives me hope. I don't want to steal your hope from you, but like... I, I, I remember my parents telling me that they had a hope for the future because of my generation. Um, I remember, well, I've talked to my current millennial associates and they've been told that they are the hope for the future generation. Now it's the kids who are down at Parkland um, who are the hope for the next generation. Like, I... I definitely feel it in a lot of spaces, and yet I've also seen, and and my curiosity is, you know, uh, flower power, the the 60s and the age of Aquarius and love and whatnot, like that was the boomer generation. That was caring for each other and doing the right thing and living with love and um, all those kind of things, and that faded away, and now we see how this block tends to vote. Um, is that really the path that we all just follow where we become more and more jaded and less likely to improve the scenario and more about protecting our own outcomes? And off, I think off John, term limits. <laughs> and John, I think you just crystallize it for me in that you're right, that generation was about all of those things. And then what happened? That generation obtained power from their parents and they got drunk on the power and the institutions we put in place maximizes your ability to maintain that power. It's like playing Monopoly and everybody starts at the same place, but only two of us got $1,500 to start. Mm -hmm. And the power that comes from that compounded over 200 plus years once you get that, you don't give that back at all. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you're right. And it'll be these kids that'll get the power. And then what will they do with it? And that'll be the $64,000 question because our generation, there isn't enough of us to right. really make the difference. It's going to be all millennials and Gen Z's and and Gen Y folks that are really going to make the difference because Gen X is going to be here. They're going to be here to blink and Gen X is going to be gone because there just aren't enough of us. But Um, but to me, (laughs) an elder millennial. How about that? (laughs) Elder millennial. Geriatric millennial. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But I just think that at the end of the day, that idealism that every sort of young person is inherently born with in this country fades over time. But once you get drunk on the power, you don't necessarily want to give that back. And I think, you know, part of the death of democracy is gerrymandering. Like I'm so proud Mm -hmm. of the people of the state that I live in that voted an amendment into the constitution that says, Nope, these maps that you draw got to be fair. You can't gerrymander this to hell. We won't have no bastardized, um, district lines. You got to fix this and fix it right. And I'm encouraged by that. And to me, I think all states should do it that way because you can't really trust either side to draw a map that's fair. I mean, the idea in Alabama yeah. that there's one black district in Alabama and it's in Birmingham when 26% <laughs> of the population is black, but they can only elect one congressperson that's black. Come on, man. you telling me all the black folks in Alabama live in one place? What is... How dumb does that sound? 
I mean, Dennis, what you just said. Don't insult my intelligence with this shit. It it reminds me very much of our backyard, right? So when we think about the city of Columbus, where, where all three of us live and work. Now, John, you don't live in the city, but you get the general idea. When we think about the Columbus City Council, the folks that are supposed to represent the city council all live in a very, very wealthy part of the city. They don't represent the city, not even close. And that is a a completely democratic city council, right? And it's by design. It's by design. design. And you cannot get into that city council unless you have basically been brought up and nurtured into it. And so, I, you know, we've been doing a lot of saying, well, Republicans this, Republicans that. It's, it's bad on the Democratic side, too. That, mm-hmm. That's not democracy, mm-hmm. that you can't get into city council unless you eat, sleep, breathe exactly what the people in there eat, sleep, and breathe. That is not- so how are we gonna- A thousand percent. A thousand percent. It's, it's not democracy at all, and that's why... You know, you guys know me a long time. I've been disenchanted with the left and damn sure the right. The right's got nothing off for me. But you're right. That's not it either. But we got to get out of this notion that, um, you know, one side has the truth. Like nobody exclusively owns the truth. And I used to think for a long time, it might not be a bad idea if some of these Republicans like a Liz Cheney or a Adam Kinzinger or whatnot, sort of an Anthony Gonzalez type, sort of level-headed people who, you know, lean conservative, who believe in conservative values, but by and large, by and large, are reasonable, decent people. I used to think it would might, it might make sense for those people to break off. They become a third party and they sort of become centrist by default because the other side is so radicalized and pushed so far to the right. But then after what you just described, Ashley, I think, you know what? But the institution hasn't changed. So over time, this new third political party would just do what the other two have done in terms of maintaining the power. It's no different than if, you know, moderate Democrats, um, because Biden's a moderate Democrat. He's not progressive. He's a progressive in sheep's clothing. But if him or, yeah, yeah, he's not. So give me him, Cinema, and Manchin for the sake of the argument. If they kind of broke off and started their own party and they were more center left and Kinzinger and these guys are more center right and you had four political parties, the underlying issue hasn't changed. It's it's real similar to me to like student loans. You could wipe out all the student loans tomorrow and no one owes anything, but you're going to be right back where you started in 10 years because you haven't addressed the underlying issue, which is why does it cost so much to go in the first place? Mm-hmm. Welcome to voter and, disenfranchisement. And so at that point, what's nothing's going to change for anyone until we start addressing some structural issues. But to do that means we're going to strip some people of power and they are going to fight against that tooth and nail and prevent that from happening. That's always been my issue with Bernie Sanders and AOC and progressives in general is on principle. I agree with everything you're saying, but show me how you're going to deliver it when you've got a billionaire class and an entire political party that's going to use every measure possible to stop you. And they win every time. So why should I vote for you? But why do you not vote for them then? Like if this is who you believe in, what you believe in, are you not wasting your vote by not voting for what you believe in? And and I'm saying this from somebody who did vote for Hillary Clinton because I did not want Donald Trump. So, like, I get to a point with that. But I don't understand why, like, in the primary, and I struggle with this with a lot of my friends, to say the Bernie platform represents so much of what you're looking for. Should we not support that? Even if we know it isn't going to deliver, don't we need to continue to send that message that these are the values that we want out of this group? Yes, on some idealistic fashion, I agree. But honestly, it's 2022. I want a flying car. And if he promised me a flying car all the time and never gave me a flying car, guess what? A flying car is never coming. So why do I continue to vote for someone who keeps promising me something they can't deliver off a principle? At the end of the day, 
The cost of chicken is up 10%. Inflation's up 7.5%. Voting for Bernie doesn't solve that. Because the system is designed to suppress someone like him and prevent him from delivering for the people. And that's why I'm saying these fundamental changes have to be made before we could ever get somebody like him who could actually deliver. But the fundamental changes don't happen. It's a chicken versus the egg thing. Yes, I know. I know. I know. Because we can't get him voted in. Like, I mean, you, I, I don't know if you all saw the clip of Nancy Pelosi where they talked about um, uh, not allowing stock trading for representatives. And she looked so disgusted by even the idea that she wouldn't be able to line her pockets with this position. Those are the people we have got to get rid of, Republican or Democrat. That is somebody who's putting their personal profit ahead of the benefit of of this country. I agree with you, John, but I think going back to death of democracy, the problem is they've gained so much. It's so codified into the system that it's not. And so to me, democracy is much more of an illusion now in this country. It's the idea that you know, we'll give you the pretense of, of you know, what you think you want. George Carlin used to have a bit uh, where he said, I, I believe in two things. I believe in the sun and I believe in Joe Pesci. And he said, I believe in the sun because I can see it every day. And he said, I believe in Joe Pesci because he looks like a guy that can get shit done. That's where we're at. If I can't see it, if you can't do something for me, then you've got to make me feel as if you is if you might be able to get it done. And again, that's what Trump did. That's what Trump did. He made a huge swath of people feel that he was in it with them. And yeah, he might lie a little bit. He might cheat on his wife or whatever, but he made them feel something. Forget the truth and objectivity and all of that. They felt something. And how you feel is way more important. So when people feel differently than you, all of a sudden, well, we can't let these people feel this way. We've got to do something. So you go and you take away, you know, their rights. And then before you know it, it's, you know, January 6th, you know, something that no one thought would ever happen. But sure enough, it happened because these people felt empowered and entitled to go take their country back. And, you know, I have to say this, this country does not have a very good track record of dealing with mass violence committed by white mobs of people. This country does not have a very good track record of dealing with that at all. And you're seeing people get, you know, six months or a fine for loitering or this, that, and the third. But historically, this country doesn't do well with that. But if that would have been Black Lives Matter protesters committing the very same thing, there would have been blood everywhere and everybody would have, and a lot of people would have felt like it was justified. It was like, no, wait a minute. Now, why is it true for one and not the other if we're all taxpaying citizens, if we're all human beings and we are the greatest country in the world, why is there a double standard? There shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a two America situation. But again, because democracy is slowly dying, these things in the aggregate are what get us here. It's not one little thing. It's a series of little things that adds up to a big thing. It feels really fatalistic from you, though. And, like, that's where I would be curious. It feels almost like you've thrown in the towel and said the right doesn't care, the left won't deliver, democracy is an illusion, and here we're supposed to be the ones convincing you that democracy is dying. You're saying that it doesn't even exist at all. And so I'm curious, like, where's the hope in this moment? You know, what is the, the strategy to make it better? Because you've mentioned your daughter, Ashley's got a son, I've got a son. Like, we have an expectation that this country or at some level should be livable enough for them. And yet the three of us are really not painting a very bright picture on, on the path this country is taking. See, this is why I like talking to you because you're going exactly where I was planning to go next, which is at the end of the day, everything you said is true, but 
my hope and my faith that things change come through having this conversation with you and Ashley. Because my sense of it is, based on feedback I've gotten, is that a lot of people feel the way we do. Everything we've just discussed, people feel that way. And the challenge is, to me, not to get, like, I love the people who run um, the website Run for Something. You know, this, all this school board craziness with CRT, this and the third, run for something. These people will back you and you can go and run for your school board or whatever you want to do. My concern is all of that momentum. You see it all the time. People go to Washington and they're going to change Washington and I'm going to fight for you. My concern is that seems to always lose steam once people get a taste of it and all of a sudden they can milk it for their own personal gain. And to me, that's the part I, I want to get to that I want to change. And I just don't know how, but I do know that if it's ever going to start, it's going to start with conversations like these. Does that make sense? Yeah, because again, I mean, I don't want to be Debbie Downer about the whole thing, but I think sometimes we got to be objectively realistic about what we're dealing with and not sugarcoat these things. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I, I like and I'll use CRT is probably a really good example. I get the need to protect your child from learning something that might be uncomfortable or difficult or what have you. And no child should be ever made to feel less than. but. If it's uncomfortable for your kid to learn about it, why is it still okay for someone else's kid to have to live it? So if you're tired of hearing about it, why don't we partner together to eliminate it so we never have to talk about it again? But we're not ready for that yet, because to do that means you have the appearance that you might be giving something up when equality is not a zero sum game. Democracy is not a zero sum game. You don't lose something because I, I because of the perception that I gained something. We all win. But going back to Ashley's point, when you have propaganda in the air and one side's pitted against the other, and when you factor race and class and sexism and everything, I mean, the U.S. women's team today just settled. They're getting twenty four million dollars in back pay and an agreement that they'll negotiate their new salaries in line with the men. So if you're paying $24 million in back pay, that's a tacit acknowledgement that they were massively underpaid. And in our news cycle, it's going to cycle out of the news in 24 hours. That's, a, that's discrimination of the highest order for you to pay $24 million in back pay. So that to me, that's how we get there. If you're tired of talking about it, then help us fix it so we don't have to talk about it anymore. But I don't think people are there yet because people are in their feelings. And I'm trying my hardest not to say, fuck your feelings. I'm trying to be a better person, John. It's 2022. Right. But it just does feel so good sometimes to tell people to fuck their feelings. That's what I'm saying. And sometimes you just got to say it with your chest. I don't give a shit how you feel. This is how What's I interesting feel. interesting is I think we've seen that same sentiment on both sides. And that's. You're right. You're right. And honestly, that's what scares me more, Ashley, is this idea that because it rose on the right that it's equally rising on the left. And these two things eventually could be nukes that cross in the sky. And that's my big fear, bringing it full circle. That's where I feel like we're at. Like, where are the calm, level-headed people to kind of put us back on track to say, guys, both of y'all got to be quiet for a minute and we got to figure out how to get this done. It's not a zero-sum game. Like, we can, we can do this, guys. Yeah. So Dennis, if we kind of go back to where we started this evening about kind of the future of democracy and is it really dead and, and what do we do? Because if the people listening to this are anything like me, the sentiment that goes through my head is what do we do? Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to kind of go back to a sentiment that we talked about right after the January 6th insurrection, the first time John and I were on the podcast where we had a similar conversation about like, what do we do? This is really scary. And I think that the, the way I felt then is exactly the same way I feel now. And I feel more hopeful about it now that things seem to maybe be um, changing a little bit with COVID. It, it's a little too soon to tell that for sure. But what I think needs to happen is we need to talk to each other because I am amazed when I sit down and talk to my conservative friends 
and realize just how much we have in common. And it isn't this dichotomy like the media has shown us it is. And we actually feel very similarly and and we can have an empathetic, emotional conversation that isn't sitting behind a keyboard and spewing hate. For the people that are listening to the TTE podcast tonight, my ask to each of you, have the conversations. Don't be defensive. Don't be aggressive. Listen, be compassionate, be empathetic. Have those conversations because that, that is what changes our future. Because we know from looking at the people who've been in Congress for longer than the three of us on this call have been alive, that is what's going to change it, not the people who are sitting in office right now, because if they were going to change it, they would have done so. And I agree, Ash, and I think that's, I think part of the reason why I ended up going down this path, and and I'm happy that it seems to resonate with people, because I just feel like conversations like this will kind of help people kind of see the humanity um, in each other. And I think that's what's important because what you just hit on is critical that there is more in common. And when you do see the humanity in the person that um, you disagree with, that's how you're able to find common ground. Compromise isn't a dirty word, but we don't do enough of that. Um, and probably the best example of that is if I'm a billionaire and I own a football team, I don't hire people that don't look like me because I can't relate to them, even though I think I can and so we've got to see the humanity in, in each other. And I think, you know, hopefully people will heed your words and use this as an opportunity to go talk to your neighbor who doesn't think like you, that maybe you guys have a little more in common. And maybe they need to understand that a lot of what they're getting isn't as scary as what they've been told. And maybe they see you and understand that, you know what, you're concerned about the same things they are. And I think you know, that that's how we get there. And that's probably not probably that's probably a good place to leave it because we've been very fired up. But at the same time, that's why I want to talk to you guys. I miss talking to you guys because I, I have these things I want to talk about and I need to talk about them, not with like minded people, but with people who will challenge my assumption and my notion. I think that's the other thing, too, is that I don't. I know I don't know everything, so let's talk to people who have a different perspective. Because yeah, sometimes you gotta we push challenge it. You with love. Well, yeah, love and respect, and I challenge you guys the same way. Absolutely. But I, I think you know not to be Pollyannish about it, but it is the golden rule: you should treat people the way you want to be treated, right? So, but I expect my institutions to do that too. And I think that's really what we're saying, if I have to sum it up. If you're going to treat everybody the way you want to be treated, you should expect the same thing out of your government, your political parties, and your institutions. So, um, John, any closing thoughts from you? I just empathize, radical empathy. I think, you know, we all are very quick to judge in this moment, and uh, we want the instant gratification of... Uh, figuring out who somebody is and putting them into the silo where you think they belong. Um, And I think that it is a tough world out there for everyone right now. And that if we lead with a little bit more empathy, maybe we could accomplish something pretty nice. I agree. A little grace goes a long way. Ash, anything from you? I, I, you know, before we hit record tonight, Dennis, you said that this was going to be a two part podcast and that you were going to have John and I on to give us, uh, give a perspective from more of a left leaning. And then your next conversation would be with folks who tend to lean a little bit more right. And, and I think that's such a beautiful way of looking at that. And it's one of the things I appreciate about you, Dennis, is you don't look at things as black and white. You want to get multiple different perspectives. And, you know, I've already given one challenge to your listeners, which is to talk to people. But I think another challenge is is to be open-minded to thoughts that may not be exactly the same as yours. Nobody here is asking you to fundamentally change the way you look and see the world. We're asking you to maybe consider that there are more uh, similarities with you than everybody around you, whether that be the media or your immediate um, network is telling you there are, because at the end of the day, I think that everybody listening to this podcast wants the same thing. And I think we have ways of getting there if we can learn to put down our keyboards and be more loving and compassionate with each other. Sorry for the (laughs) policy. No, no. uh, Thank you for, uh, uh, that's one of the things I love about you. But 
You're, you guys are 100% right. And I just think at the end of the day, having conversations like these and creating a safe space to have a tough conversation was really sort of the goal um, of all of this. So if people are going to get that out of it, hopefully it gives them the courage to go do exactly what you guys um, are suggesting. So um, with that, I can't thank you guys enough. This is It's been too long since we got together, so we'll have to Amen. get together soon. And I promise the next time we get together, it won't be something heavy as the death of democracy. We'll we'll talk Chicken about wings and beers. You know, Chicken wings we'll, and beers. We'll talk, we'll talk about wings and whether or not boneless <laughs> wings should be outlawed everywhere. Because <laughs> if you're ordering boneless wings, you're saying a lot about yourself. Yeah. Thanks for having us again, buddy. Always really, really glad to talk with both of you. Absolutely. I love you guys, man. I appreciate you guys coming on. We'll do it again soon. 